You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss the complex issues and events shaping our world on this podcast from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Now, if you're watching us uh, on YouTube or Facebook, you can join the live broadcast on Zoom like, and submit some questions when, uh, to, to answer on the, on the live stream. And if you want to do that, join us uh, on Zoom. Meeting ID is 812-506-618. And uh, let me turn now to today's topic. And I'm going to introduce my colleague, Aaron Smith. Aaron, are you there? Yeah. Hi, Alon. Hi, Aaron. Welcome. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a new piece that's coming out in the June print edition of The Athletic. And the title, in the, I think in the print edition, the title is Underlying Conditions. And on the web, if you read it now, in the preview, it's called We Are Living in a Failed State by the old George Packer. And I imagine most people haven't read the piece, although we have. So maybe you can just start us off with a sort of a thumbnail sketch of what is the main claim of the article, and then sort of, uh, we can dig into what, what makes it so interesting and exploring. Yeah. So if you want to go ahead and stop your screen share there for a second, we can. Um, yeah, so uh, the piece, um, it's, an it's an interesting piece of analysis, although we're going to have some things, to, comments to say about what we think of the analysis. Um, but it starts out, let me just read the first paragraph. Wet quote, when the virus came here, it found a country with serious underlying conditions and it exploited them ruth ruthlessly. Chronic ills, a corrupt political class, a sclerotic bureaucracy, a heartless economy, a divided and distracted public had gone untreated for years. We had learned to live uncomfortably with the symptoms. It took the scale and intimacy of a pandemic to expose their severity to shock Americans with the recognition that we are in, a, in the high-risk category." Uh, close quote. Um, so that's how it starts. And so he's using the metaphor of um, uh, a patient with pre-existing conditions that, you know, when the, when the virus comes, he's significantly more vulnerable. Uh, and of course, America's the patient in the metaphor. Um, and so the question is, what are the pre-existing conditions? And I think it's a good metaphor. Um, and I would boil it down to three. Um, uh, First, number one, I would put it is uh, an, an irresponsible and corrupt administration. So this is the way Packer sees it. I'll, I'll boil it down to three. Um, and here he cites uh, Trump's uh, many, I think, irresponsible statements, his downplaying of the problem, uh, the projection of false hope, uh, the general lack of a credible leadership, and many other things that he brings <laughs> to Trump's story. He's got a lot to say. He's very angry about that. Uh, but that's definitely one. Uh, the second is um, a, a populace uh, deeply divided by the constant uh, partisanship and politicization of the issues that we face. 
uh, by both political parties uh, and their supporters in the media. Uh, and so people separate into camps, into kind of warring camps, each in their own kind of echo chamber, listening to their own news bubbles, uh, and each being uh, highly suspicious of anything coming from what they regard as the other camp. Um, so you've got what you regard as an irresponsible, corrupt administration, a divided populace, and couple that with, he says, uh, long-standing social inequalities. So you've got the whole specter of inequality um, that is going unaddressed. Uh, and he cites things like uh, the inability of uh, less well-off people to get testing, whereas uh, some rich actress, for example, can easily get a test for her family or herself. Um, White-collar workers can, you know, work from home on Zoom, for example, and a lot of the people in the services and so they're, you know, um, are losing their jobs, losing their livelihood, have a really unstable future, and it just exposes those kinds of inequalities and, uh, and in, injustices, in his view. Uh, and I think he thinks that the, the result of all, this, of all this is uh, a cynical populace um, lacking any trust in political officials, and there's a general erosion of any sense of national unity or cohesion. Uh, and he puts it, we have no vision of a shared identity or future. Uh, and in that regard, he thinks of us as a nation unequipped to handle a crisis. Uh, and so it's, in a way, it's kind of an alarm call, an alarm bell uh, for, like, these things need to be addressed in some ways, otherwise we're not going to move forward. Um, and so that's a bit of a nutshell, maybe a walnut, not a hazelnut, uh, of what uh, the article claims. Yeah, and I, I thought this article was really uh, interesting in a number of ways, and we'll touch on uh, on some of the dimensions of it. The, you know, just what people will get when they read it, and I, I highly encourage everyone watching to read it, is uh, to, there's a lot of anger, and I think some of it is, is well is justified, that there's real problems. And one of the reasons we picked this as something to explore, uh, to talk about, that I think while we don't agree with all of his analysis and maybe big parts of it, are, I think, are wrong, uh, he's asking an important question. There's no question. I mean, it's really important. Um, so we are in a crisis and crises, uh, we're talking about this earlier, and you, you, you were pointing out, Aaron, that crises, both in a person's own life or just as a, on a society-wide level, they really bring out they make more clear whatever vulnerabilities or weaknesses there are. Uh, and it's, it's a time, therefore, to, to reflect. Now, obviously, if you're in a, in a crisis, you're in the middle of an earthquake, you, you don't have time to reflect, right? You're, you're in an emergency, you step away. But just more broadly, when you do have the time to think, it's, it's really important to think as, as soon after you, uh, the sort of the emergency situation is over and reflect on how did you get into this position? What, what could you do differently in the future? The question that I think Packer is right to raise, and this is why I, I think he's, it's an important piece, is, you know, putting it in my, in my terms, um, it's really strange that the world's richest country, the most advanced country technologically, scientifically, by every, every measure you can think of, you know, that should lead you to think that we'd be better prepared for this. Uh, than any other country. We have all those sort of both social capital, literal capital, however you want to measure the, these sorts of things. We have every reason to expect that American, America's response will be stronger than it has been on a firmer footing. And yet the reality is, and, and this is what has triggered his article in The Atlantic, 
is we're not not anywhere near what you think we should be. Uh, he he likens it, which I think is a really powerful uh, way to put it. Uh, America responded like Pakistan, like a really failed state, like a really weak state without much uh, sort of a, a, a competent government and so on. But there, there's aspects to this article which we will touch on here and there that I think are hyperbolic. I don't think that one is hyperbolic. Um, I mean, the, the headline too, it's just not clear if he picked the headline, but I, I think it's, it's, it's a bit strong to say that America is a failed state. I mean, we, we still have a government. We're not, not anarchy in the streets. It's not Libya or Somalia or the, sort of the, the quintessential failed state. Um, so the question really is, you know, and the, the way we set up the title for this discussion, is, has the pandemic exposed America's, quote, pre-existing conditions, you know, picking up on that medical metaphor, and I think that one way to think of this is what are the political, cultural, social conditions in America that have colored our situation that have made us more vulnerable to this pandemic? And, and that's how I think of the question in this piece. And, he, and I think he does get at a lot of aspects that are relevant and true. Uh, and as I said, we're, we're going to unpack a bit his analysis. Um, now we're not going to cover everything. It's a very long article, and, and you know if you read it, you'll see things that you probably don't agree with. We don't agree. With. We're not going to cover everything we disagree with or everything we agree with. We're just going to pick a few key points. So don't take our silence on some point in his article to be tacit approval or agreement. That's that's certainly not our view. Um, so with that, Aaron, why don't we now dig into so so what's behind payment? What are some of the assumptions or, or uh, if you have to unpack it? really going on here? What is he being here in terms of a philosophical perspective to the extent there? Well, I think in, I mean, in general, I think the, I mean, we'll talk about this more as we proceed here, but I think in general, uh, the analysis that he offers, I mean, some of the aspects of it, I think are right and some aren't, but I think overall it's too political in its uh, sense of causality in terms of what's what's really at root of things. I mean, you get um, political divisiveness, you get, um, you know, corrupt administration or inept administration and so on. A lot of it he lays at the foot of the present administration. Um, bureaucracy. And so there's a lot of political type causes. Um, but one of the themes he brings up and he puts it in terms of divisiveness uh, or a divided public. And I want to say some things about that because there's there, there's more philosophically, I think, intellectually, culturally going on there that's not just politically, a political issue. So one of the themes that uh, comes up a lot in the uh, article, or just keep periodically coming up, um, is the erosion of any sort of national or what he calls civic unity uh, in America. Uh, and he couples that with the divisiveness uh, of our political culture. And there's certainly something to that. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt about that, that that's a, that's a factor. Um, but I think it's relevant also that he only calls out, for example, uh, uh, Republicans or more specifically Trump and his supporters. Um, and he says that, you know, the, he, he puts it as something like, uh, you know, Trump, the Trump administration never even pretended to govern for the whole nation. You know, in other words, they've got their pocket of supporters and and so on. And he says, he says that the Trump administration has been pitting us against each other, but quote, uh, along lines of race, sex, religion, citizenship, education, uh, region, and political party, close quote. 
Uh, and so he, he emphasizes that a lot. He's very angry at the administration. But he doesn't mention the fact that the left um, or the progressives, however you want to put it, um, has been openly and explicitly pitting Americans against each other. Um, and I think in particularly using the issue of inequality as one of its uh, means of doing so. So you get them, um, I mean, this is not anything new, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth pointing out that he doesn't emphasize this really at all. Um, it's, you know, the, the way in which they encourage a kind of a tribal hatred between the rich and the poor, the demonizing of millionaires and billionaires. I mean, all you need to do is say millionaires and billionaires and it sort of taps in to a kind of a context, um, you know, pitting the so-called 99% uh, against the 1%, Wall Street against Main Street. It's all these kinds of divisions which have become uh, central aspects of the, their, their rhetoric or their narrative. Yeah, to build on that. So, I mean, we, we're in a time where, you know, just a few months ago, if you think it was an open, an actual question of whether billionaires should exist, like as, as should they be allowed to keep their money? Now, whatever you think of that, the, a key thing to take from the fact that this is an open question is this is the, the culmination of a long line of argument about this narrative of inequality. And to get to the point where we're seriously considering whether who've earned their wealth should be allowed to keep it because it's so much, that's just, I think there's more of an expression of this long progression that you have to take a philosophic perspective to see. Yeah, and, and one of the aspects of that, uh, it's again coming out of that same kind of narrative from the left, not to absolve the right, um, but it's the, the, the attempt to play up and or stir up a kind of a self-righteous hatred against the successful or the wealthy and their earned uh, rewards. Uh, I mean, that's part of the whole, you didn't build that theme and why that really angered a lot of people. Um, even people who were leaning in a little bit of support of that, that there's something about that. If you, if you were successful, that you didn't really build it, the community helped you and so on. And it's, Let's just remind people. Let's just remind people what the you didn't build that comes from, right? So it was originally a narrative that Elizabeth Warren was peddling, and then it became a major speech. Uh, it got a lot of visibility when Barack Obama uttered it, and it it was sort of ricocheting around uh, social media and the sort of public. And it, it really was, I, I think, um, a. a a, it crystallized for many people. This is how you know to think about the issue. You, as an individual, don't have you can't claim responsibility for your own successes, and don't you know don't don't feel proud about your success. Yeah, and that's the whole kind of. But, but this and this brings in the whole kind of collectivist perspective about achievement. The only way to so if you're going to say uh, the successful or the wealthy don't get to keep their money. Um, you have to treat this as an issue of justice, but to treat it as an issue of justice, you have to say, well, it's not really theirs. Or, well, maybe some of it is, but, but a lot of it's, you know, uh, things they've accumulated as a result of a society. And so it, as a result, society should get some of it back. And, and to turn that into an issue of justice, um, you have to try to take it away that it's their earned reward. Um, and that's part, part of what's going on there is that kind of collectivist sort of way of thinking about it. Um, so I was talking about the issue of um, the sort of divisiveness, and he's making the point that this is going on heavily on the right, and he puts a lot of this at the door of Trump. Uh, but I think the, one of the reasons why he's sort of, there's no emphasis at all in the piece. He says this happens on both political parties, but that's simply a mention, but there's no 
real um, accounting or grappling with the fact that this is occurring deeply on the left. And I think in part of the reason why Packer doesn't emphasize this is because um, those lines of rich, poor, 1%, 90%, it, this is all coming from the sort of inequality narrative, the idea that um, where all these uh, you know, inequalities exist, there exists in injustice necessarily. Um, and so, I mean, he puts it in the, in the article as, he says, he says it's the fundamental re relentless force in American life since the late 70s, that's in the inequality issue. So he's very sympathetic, I think, to the moral uh, perspective that divides people into categories like rich and poor, 1%, 90%, Wall Street, Main Street, and so on. Um, so he doesn't really see playing on these divisions, I think, and I'm, I'm putting this in his mouth a little bit, but I, I don't think he sees these playing on these divisions as problematic, um, but probably more something as, yeah, this is kind of the right way to look at the moral situation. Um, but this is a whole philosophic perspective that I think is worth challenging because I think it's deeply wrong. But Packer is certainly not prepared to challenge, I think, that, that narrative and that way of dividing up um, people in terms of inequalities and making this as an issue of justice against the successful and so on. Um, so when he says, uh, um, he makes the point that, you know, that when the pandemic hit, I mean, this should have united us, uh, you know, like, like after 9-11 or something, we all came together, so he says, so he says. Um, and it didn't matter whether you were in Alabama or New York or whatever, you're an American and this matters and so on. Um, but, you know, after the, the financial crisis, people started to get more jaded and the inequalities started to come out in more relief and so on. And now by the time the pandemic hits, we're all dividing on partisan lines and stuff. But that really should come as no surprise, given the whole way in which um, the inequality debate and, and, and other things have been playing out in the culture. So there, um, there is an issue of unity and division going on here, but I don't think it's too narrowly treated, I think, in Packer's article. Um, and in this, in the context of talking about uh, national unity and all this stuff, uh, it's worth saying that Ayn Rand had a lot to say about the issue of um, national unity and what that means and how it's eroded and what it takes to support it and so on uh, in her talk, um, A Nation's Unity. Uh, and that's a Ford Hall forum talk she gave. It's available on ARI campus. Uh, so you can go to our website, Ayn Rand. Ayn campus uh, and look up the talk, A Nation's Unity. Uh, and she talks, it's mostly about the McGovern campaign, but it's about these calls for unity and the ways in which um, uh, things that are aspects of our political culture and our culture more generally are dividing us up um, and what it takes to real have real, a real unity. So, I mean, I think there's an issue there, but I don't think it's framed the right way uh, in Packer's article. Yeah, I mean, just one quick aside about his, so in the article, as you mentioned, he talks about 9-11 as, you know, for a while we were better united than we've seen to, to be now in the face of the pandemic. And he says, yeah, but that, that faded off as a result of some changes in policy, particularly Iraq war. And I think even th there's something to it, but I think he's, he's overstating the level of uh, sort of people coming together after 9-11. It was very clear that there was, many voices, particularly intellectuals, ready to point the finger at America and blame America for the attacks, um, to in effect repackaging their existing views, not really trying to engage with what actually happened and just sort of pinning it on their, their preferred analysis. And then I think the, there, there were people who drove 800 miles to come to ground zero and help 
Uh, but just as, I mean, there are people now flying from Atlanta to New York to help in the hospital. So, so I mean, that kind of thing happens. I don't know that you can draw a lot from it. Um, and I, I think so. I think his view of the post 9-11 period is too rosy. And I don't think he's fully sort of given enough evidence for his view that right now that kind of phenomenon that he looks back on fondly isn't happening. Because I mean, there are people volunteering to sew face masks, which is, a, you know, it's too bad that we're in a position where that has to happen. But it's the fact that people are stepping in to do it is remarkable. Um, so that's just a, you know, there's a question about how accurate his take on that is. I wanted to build a couple of point on what you were saying regarding inequality. So um, for people interested in this issue, I think it's important for us to acknowledge it's a complicated issue. And that's one of the flags that went up for me when he treats it as it's an obvious thing, like we know there's inequality. It's a real debate. And there, it's not at all settled that we know what the level of inequality is, let alone that we think it's a bad thing or, or um, you can measure it in the way people think you can measure it. Our colleagues, Don Watkins and Yaron Brook, uh, Brook wrote a book called Equal is Unfair that takes on some aspects of this debate. And I think one of the successful things in the book is that they unpack how to think about the data people present to establish that there's inequality and how to evaluate the phenomenon. Is it really true that when someone who's wealthy gets wealthier, that means you get poorer? Is it really a zero sum? I don't think it is. There are situations where it is but those aren't what people point to. Um, and there are problems that fall under the broad heading of inequality that are real problems, but they're not about inequality. Like, so people are hamstrung, I think, and, and literally handicapped by the state school system. And so it puts them, it's such a disadvantage if that's the school you go to and it's really under-resourced, badly taught, and you know, there's just no way for you to learn anything. That's a real problem and, and it, it's, it, it can have a huge impact on your ability in life to succeed. But again, I, I think a lot of things are pushed under this heading of inequality that don't really belong there. So uh, we're not gonna spend time unpacking it here, but I just wanna flag that that's the, you know, we're not brushing it aside, but also it's important to recognize it's not a given, it's not like the law of gravity. It's, you can't treat it like that. It's a real conceptualization issue. Uh, and I think a lot of it is misconceptualized. The other thing I, I was going to raise uh, in sort of connection to what you were saying about divisiveness, uh, I agree with that sort of obse that observation you make that it's it, his view of it is too political, and uh, and I, you're right to point out the omission that the, sort of the, the sort of a progressive narrative that's pushing this. Um, he mentions a little that there's this kind of divisiveness coming from sort of the right and conservatives and, and Republicans. And I think there is, and it, it takes the form of, you know, real Americans versus global elites or, or coastal elites and globalists. And, and that, that whole way of thinking is just a variation on the theme of what I would think of as tribalism. Like there's our tribe and there's the other tribe. They're bad, we're good, we're the true uh, embodiment of this idea. And the important thing to get that while it's come to the fore, it's become very prominent in the last five years or so, well, there's more attention paid to it. Um, it's been in the works for decades. And this is to your point about we need a more philosophic perspective. So if you want to understand that sort of, as he puts it, divisiveness or, or lack of cohesion, um, you have to go back to... Uh, so the, at least two things to understand it. One is the emergence of this 
movement for egalitarianism, which is not about equality, it's about leveling people down. And Ayn Rand had a really profound analysis of egalitarianism, which you can find in her work. And to understand that movement, you have to see how it was intersected and in, in kind of reinforced by the work of the philosopher John Rawls, uh, who's so like he's a giant in the field uh, on this issue. And the other trend that you would have to trace back is what I would think of sort of just describe as modern tribalism, or Ayn Rand called it uh, balkanization, which is a term that had real currency years ago. It goes back decades, and, and it's the kind of the the resurgence of primitive ways of thinking and, and acting in modern societies where you would not expect that kind of thinking. And, and it's a, and her analysis, which we've written on in New Ideal, and you can read her own analysis in the essay, Global Balkanization. The root of that, to understand the root of that, you have to see the long progression of philosophic trends that have impacted education as an institution, that have impacted culture and the ideas that people hold, and that have shaped people's decisions. So. Yes, we see it under Trump. We saw it under Obama, but it goes way back. And it, it, to really understand this kind of problem, it, it, you have to know the long progression that led to it. Uh, and in that sense, I think there's a lot more sort of philosophic to say about this piece and this issue. Um, then, then I, and, and so the criticism isn't, oh, Packer isn't making a philosophic point. The point is that he's, what he's arguing and trying to explain can't fully be explained in the terms that he's presenting. Like the the political explanation is insufficient, I think, uh, fully to, to cover it. Yeah, and just to follow up on the point about uh, divisiveness and a divided populace and so on, because um, the issue in the article, I mean, what the article is addressing is America's underlying conditions that made us more vulnerable at the time of the pandemic. So why is the dividedness, I mean, that could be a fact about our culture, but why is that a problem? Uh, and I think in part is there's, it's very difficult for people to take seriously things coming from the other camp as they see it, the side, the other tribe, the other group. Um, and it makes it hard to listen to, for example, let's say some experts, uh, expert opinion coming from, um, uh, a network, for example, that has associated itself with one political camp or or other, um, or one uh, uh, a democratic politician uh, offering some kind of a forecast for this is what it looks like in the future. Maybe we're going to have this number of deaths and so on, and people just stop listening um, to that. Well, I don't, you know, that's all. Oh, that's all fake news, or that, or whatever, or whatever the, the term would be. Uh, that you know, we don't listen to that. That's obviously biased, and and. Then there's, it's just complete breakdown of objectivity of any kind of, um, uh, like, it would seem that if you were in, a, in, a, in something like a crisis, you would look to some experts, not to just, you know, toe the line and just listen to whatever they say, but to think about, to process what's being said, to kind of compare um, experts' uh, opinions and testimony and so on, to, to think about it. But part of this tribalism in terms of the camps and so on it's we discount things come from the other side and the, and the other side does the same thing. And it's, and it, people wind up being in bubbles and they can't really process the information. Uh, I mean, some people do, it's not like this is a universal statement. Um, but that's definitely uh, something. 
Scott, I just wanted to, you know, we've been talking about this article for a while. So just to remind people where they can find it, the, the article online, the title for it is We're Living in a Failed State, and it's published in The Atlantic. It'll be in the June 2020 print edition. Uh, there's a preview of it online right now. And um, we've talked about a couple of essays by Ayn Rand so far. And why don't we just mention them here uh, in, in conversation, and we'll put them in the show notes too. So the, when you were talking about divisiveness, you raised her analysis of this idea of, an, of national unity and what, what rationally one should think about when that, uh, under that heading. So that there's that, a nation's unity is one essay. I mentioned uh, global balkanization, which is a, a really powerful analysis of the rise of modern tribalism. Uh, so this is in, you know, uh, decades ago. And I think uh, looking back on that essay, uh, it, it, she's getting at a timeless issue in terms of the sort of the mechanics, the philosophical dimension of how, why it is that people gravitate to these sort of tribal groups. And then uh, we have a question uh, about Rand's, or I mentioned the, the, uh, Rand's analysis of egalitarianism. Um, I think a, a good place to look is uh, the untitled, I think it's called Untitled Letter, which is uh, her essay responding to sort of the, the emergence of egalitarianism and specifically um, the work of John Rawls, who, who's sort of making waves at this time. Uh, and he, he went on to become a super influential philosopher. Uh, you can read it there. Uh, and I think you can, uh, you can find some of these on our website. We'll put links to them in the show notes for people who would like. And I, I highly encourage you to read it because part of what, what I find valuable um, when we have these discussions is to try to think philosophically about some of these things. Uh, Ayn Rand has in, insights that are timeless. They're philosophical and they, they apply well beyond the concrete issues that led her to write a given analysis back when she was working on her periodicals. So uh, I think there's a lot to be gained from from that kind of uh, approach. So Aaron, we're, we're at the ha almost half hour in. Let, let's maybe wrap up with a couple more points each and we'll try to take some questions. Sure, yeah. So if we're talking about underlying conditions, uh, one thing that's very much missing from Packer's analysis, uh, maybe because he, he agrees with it or seems sympathetic to it. And you'd have to put this in here, I think, um, because it, it, it deals with the issue of um, our, uh, our preparedness, our ability to respond quickly to the pandemic uh, and so on. And there are deeper causes to uh, our inability to do that uh, than just political issues. And I think there's, it's, there's the whole culturally embedded sort of moral philosophical framework um, of the kind of hatred of or suspicion of the profit motive of self-interest uh, and so on that leads to a kind of anti-capitalist mentality. You get the demonization of businessmen, of pharmaceutical companies, treating profit-making profit companies as villains, uh, leading to the idea, well, we need this whole regulatory state to protect us from corporate greed and rapaciousness. And this is all part of the cultural background. Uh, and it's a heavy part of America's pre-existing conditions, I think. And if you can just take as examples some of the things, the ways in which um, the FDA uh, has been blocking uh, tests that they won't approve. Uh, everything has to go through FDA approval. Uh, um, the, saying, well, you, we, we're not going to approve any kind of home tests and the way in which that has become a major sort of regulatory roadblock uh, for testing. 
uh, hospitals requiring, um, I think it was called certificates of need. You know, if they want to build a new wing of the hospital and add a bunch more beds and stuff, they have to get special approval, prior approval to do that um, on the premise that, well, if hospitals were allowed to just build a new wing, uh, they would, you know, uh, improperly or dishonestly say, yeah, you need to be hospitalized to make money and fill the beds, right, because they're greedy bastards and so on. So the whole idea there is, you know, we have something has to save us from people going out for their self-interest, businessmen, big business and so on. And so you need this whole regulatory state that's going to tell people what they're going to do. Uh, and that's created a, a lot of roadblocks and uh, like rising costs, dropping, uh, you know, lack of innovation and stuff because of all the roadblocks and the costs associated. So, um, I mean, this, that, that whole issue, I mean, that's been brought up many times by people, um, uh, but not, not on the left, but not on the right either. But um, that whole issue gets no mention at all in, in Packer's article. And it's, uh, I mean, I think philosophically, I think the country's in a pretty bad state in that regard, uh, because that there aren't many voices uh, who are willing to challenge that kind of perspective. I mean, we're one of them, but that, that definitely has to be mentioned. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that struck me about his so both the question and then his attempt to answer it is that he's pointing to things that I think are, are worth criticizing the Trump administration for. And I've definitely, I've written things that are critical of Trump's response to this. And I'm not the only one who's has that view. Um, and whatever you view, whatever you think of the Trump administration, it, the, the concern I have is that again, it, in Packer's analysis, it's, it's, um, it's too narrowly focused on Trump as if this is, uh, um, as if past administrations have handled crises superbly. Um, and this is not to exonerate Trump, far from it, but th there's a real issue in our political scene that I think one has to pay attention to if you're trying to explain this kind of uh, issue, this phenomenon that Trump, the Packer is interested in. And you know, people sometimes talk about politics. It's not about the ideas. It's not about the issues anymore. It's it's kind of it's like a competitive sport, or it's and there's, I mean, there's a grain of truth to that, but it's it's such an understatement of what the situation really is. Um, I think of it as it's completely drained of principles, and a sort of a long-range perspective, a conceptual approach, which takes thinking forward, thinking in, in sort of long stretches of time and trying to integrate behavior and plans around uh, uh, sort of a goal, a political goal. And what, you might have the wrong goals, but you, you having a goal and then uh, coordinating action toward it. Uh, and that I think is missing. And so back in uh, the, period, the Vietnam period, Ayn Rand wrote a really interesting essay about the situation that she saw in the political scene. I think it's, it's relevant to thinking about our political situation because I think we're further down that road. Uh, she described this uh, as sort of anti-ideology, like anti-matters, like the opposite of what you actually want to see. And so what is ideology? It, it, you know, if you take away the negative connotations that have become encrusted on it, which I think are unfortunate because it basically is a political ideology is, is just a set of principles that help you um, maintain your goal and kind of organize a political system or social system. 
And it, you know, it requires long range action and long range thinking. And to do that, the, the means of doing that are principles and goals and, 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 and generalizations that guide you across time uh, so that your steps really lead to a certain kind of outcome. The time she was writing about the Vietnam War, she took that, so the policies around that, include, so particularly uh, the draft and just why we were in the war as two manifestations of the absence of uh, real political ideology, so a real conceptual principled approach uh, and a long range vision. It, was, it happens in her analysis is people's range of focus just shifts to, you know, what are we going to say? What's the crisis now? What are we going to do now? And no thinking about, well, will we be ready for the next crisis? What happens in six months from now? What, so think about today, we, got, we have to get into lockdowns, okay? It's, it's not obvious that these are the best solution, but if you're going to do that, when do you end them? Do you have evidence for thinking when, you, when it would be right to do that? And, and you would need to say something about that before you enter into that kind of drastic solution. But that, that hasn't happened. And if you go further back in terms of preparedness, there's definitely uh, sort of a lack of long-range vision. So pandemics, just they arise, right? They, this is part of what nature happens. You know, we get these pathogens. And there are smart people who work on this whole field of preparedness for infectious diseases. And part of what they tell you each time is we had Ebola, we had Zika, we had all these other, uh, uh, we had SARS, but the, there wasn't the kind of long range vision that says, yeah, let's take these lessons and do something with them. It sort of, it falls by the wayside and it, it, the focus of the sort of people in the political scene is, okay, we're, we're coming up on the next election cycle. How do I make sure? That, and it's not at all kind of an integrated conceptual approach. And I think if, if you want to understand sort of the chaos that we see in our political scene right now, it's really helpful to relate it to this conception of so what Ayn Rand calls anti-ideology or this idea of draining polit politics from any kind of long-range purpose, principles, and sort of coordination over time towards some end or some so maintaining the political system. Um, and I think that is, is helpful in thinking about, okay, well, how did the richest country in the world, the most advanced, how did it end up having such a much harder time than you would expect dealing with this pandemic? And I think this is, if you want to use the metaphor of a pre-existing condition, this one has been around for decades and it's just gotten worse. And when it, you know, I mean, part of this is it's it's too early for a full autopsy if we keep yeah. using medical analysis. But but I think it's relevant though because if you're uh, when you ask that question, like why why did this turn out much worse than it, it could have? That's that's the kind of thing you have to look at. What is the current cultural situation uh, that we uh, that, uh, that we live with, in effect? But and and getting the getting the analysis of what those are right matters a lot because when you start to try to um, fix the problem or make us better prepared for the next time uh, is, are you going to do what say Packer wants us to do is, um, you know, have some big campaign to address uh, inequality and throw out the Trump camp uh, administration. But yeah, the, who do you bring in then? he seems to have some, um, some a rosy picture of the Obama days, <laughs> which I do not. Uh, and so it's, you have to get those things right. Um, I mean, Catherine asks a question in the Q&A. I think we just answered this very briefly, at least first from Packer's perspective. So the question is, um, is this all about Trump himself or the people he surrounds himself with 
or those he inherited from the prior administration. Well, from the perspective of Packer, it's both. Um, I mean, he regards Trump uh, well, in the lowest of terms. Um, but then also is that one of the things he's done is got rid of a lot of career civil servants with a lot of expertise that are around him uh, because they're not so-called loyal to him. They won't, uh, they don't tow his party line or whatever it is. Uh, and he's, he's got him gutted uh, some experts, uh, gutted his administration of some experts that could have been, had some real put the brakes on or, or like pushed hard back against. And uh, you, you get the impression from Packer that this is not exactly at all what he wants. So he surrounded himself with sycophants um, who just nod and agree and praise. Um, uh, and, and so from Packer's perspective, it's, it's both. And I think there's definitely something to that. Yeah, I mean, on a different uh, forum, uh, one of our colleague Ankar Gatte presenting on this topic at the Ayn Rand Con live event that we did a couple of weekends back uh, in discussing what is, what would be a rational sort of uh, problem and response and how do you compare it to what we have now? And I think his, one of the observations he made was that people, you know, there, there was a level of denial for a long time in the administration and then panic as a result of the denial when you couldn't deny it anymore. And then now we're getting into sort of a lot of flailing around kind of reactions. Um, and this goes to a point that is raised in, I think, Steve's question about, do you think there are people enjoying the fact that government's power has increased, that they like to have, um, I mean, I think there are people in our government who do like wield power and there's, there's, I don't think it's only in the Trump administration. I think that some of the governors are clearly enjoying the fact that they can, they, believe themselves to have the power to just shut down a state, which is remarkable. And I, I think it's, uh, it's astonishing that um, they do. In, in many cases, they, the, the laws are such that um, they have that kind of uh, latitude. Um, and it is a problem. I mean, the, you know, we've, in other places, we talk about how this is a, I mean, there's real worries about how government's power ratchets like it's it's very unusual for a crisis to, to end, and for things to revert into the scope of government and where it has involved itself. So yeah, that is a worry I have. So uh, let's see if we can find more questions to wrap up. Maybe two. There was Steve Christmas. So the shorter your question is, uh, <laughs> the yeah. easier it is for us to read it uh, and take a look quickly. Um, Let me take this one from Mark. Do you want to read the yeah, next one? And, yeah. yeah. So um, the question is, reinforcement to these bad ideas that their effects make their basis more valid. How do you unpack the causes and effects of um, I'm not sure if the effects reinforce the bad ideas. I'm not sure exactly how you have, but if, um, I don't think in reality they do reinforce the bad ideas in the sense that, um, oh yeah, we didn't make a plan, therefore we should never make a plan. I don't think the evidence points to that conclusion. I think in a, if anything that um, people aren't trying to draw the lessons from these things. What I do think reinforces these bad ideas is, a number of things. One of them is live in a society where the the prevailing philosophic ideas are not challenged, and that's true from 
from schooling to, to education to sort of the cultural commentary and to, to politics. And from every direction, you get the idea that, yeah, uh, thinking long range, thinking in principle, that's, you know, that's doctrinaire. That's the wrong way to think things. Or who is to trust their own judgment? Who are you to say anything? So there's all kinds of pressures against sort of being rational and using reason. There's those are reinforcing. And, and unfortunately, I don't think a crisis really upends those as it ought to. It, sh it should be a reckoning for people. Like, how did we get here? Did we think about the problem before? Pay enough attention to it. Those are the sorts of questions you should be asking. But there is such a, a powerful and concerted uh, barrage from every direction that, yeah, the human mind is really equipped to do the world. And, and you get this from academia, you get this from all sides on the sphere. Those are really powerful reinforcers for sort of the kind of responses we're seeing um, here and in previous crises too. Yeah, we've got a question here from uh, William. And this, I suppose, will be our last uh, question because we're wrapping up here. He says, uh, while I did not vote for Trump in 2016 and have never been impressed with his qualifications, I'm unable to see what would have been a better response to the potential pandemic other than, I don't I think he regards this as better, but uh, uh, other than a more aggressive subjugation of personal liberty, uh, how either um, have either of the panelists observed an obviously better or more logical response uh, that would have been apparent at the time rather than in hindsight? <clears throat> well, I mean, it, I think at, at the point, I mean, at the point at which, um, uh, I mean, I, I follow, <laughs> I actually follow the politics a little bit less uh, than some other people here. Um, but the denial of that there is a problem, the, the statements that he made, well, it's not a pandemic, it's not a pandemic, there's nothing, nothing, nothing here to see, we got it all solved, we got it all locked down, we're doing a great job. Uh, a lot of these statements, I think, pushed a lot of false promise when I think the, the issue should have been taken significantly more clearly. And I think uh, the public by the administration, even if the administration didn't really take it that seriously, I mean, let's say they had good reasons for that and the people that are informing them and stuff, they don't take it that seriously. I think more transparency, much more transparency as to what is actually known, what is unknown, what are some of the things that are actually being said about the disease and its spread and its danger and so on, um, versus a lot of just reassuring the public. I mean, I think that too much of the re downplaying and the reassuring of the public when it's more that, no, we're getting reports saying these kinds of things and that's a lot dangerous. I, and they, he could say, you know, I don't think that this is as much of an issue, but we are getting these kind of things. More objectivity, more transparency, I think uh, is, uh, if, and not more subjugation of personal liberty. I think much more of that at the outset. And as a general tenor, of the communication of uh, a president or the president's administration with the public, I think is, I'll, I'll just say that to start out. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's a lot to say. It's too bad it's the last question, but uh, so there's a lot to say on this. And one thing I would recommend is that uh, you can find the recordings of this now on our website, newideal.einrand.org. Uh, new we did a, a conference called Ayn Rand Con Live uh, on the 18th of April. And the videos online on YouTube and the recordings are on our podcast, there I live. Uh, so listen in particular to the, to the two talks uh, by 
one by Ankar Gatte and one by Ron Brook, where part of what they try to do is, and it's not, I mean, part of what they try to do is to say, look, here's what could be done that is, I think, a better response. And uh, within the current conditions, not just in an ideal society where we, we have, you know, complete freedom and, and, and a rational system of government, even under the conditions we live in, there are ways to have responded more uh, effectively. And I, th I agree with your observations, Aaron, that there was a month plus where there was denial and then playing down, which was really too bad. And then just, um, it's remarkable how many things can be roadblocks that are lifted overnight for the regulatory state in, in this context. And th there's ways in which, yeah, you could move faster. But the other thing to look at is, I think so, it's interesting that different countries have responded differently and have had varying levels of success. Now, not everything in other countries is replicable here, but the, the, the sort of method of um, trying to test very quickly and on a wide scale, um, tracking people. Now, you, I think you can do tracking without it being invasive and, and kind of violating people's uh, freedom. Um, and that you can try to do it. You can, you can have a kind of um, voluntary system where people isolate themselves and do the right thing and minimize sort of the, the impact on hospitals and, and obviously the impact on other people when they're infectious. Um, and it's worth looking at that. So it's not to say everyone, someone else has done it perfectly, but there are definitely ways that in, even in a mixed economy where you have some freedom and a lot of regulations, there are things one could have done that are superior to what we have now, um, both in terms of thinking about the problem and then in terms of acting in response to it. So I highly recommend that um, the, the, we'll put this in the show notes too for people who are interested in exploring this, uh, those kinds of questions. Uh, so we're, we've reached our time. I just want to remind people that um, if you are watching us on YouTube, you, you know, I highly encourage you to subscribe to the ARI channel. You can do that by clicking on the red button that says subscribe and then make sure that when you do that, you click on the bell to get notifications of when we go live. And if you're listening on the podcast, great. Please subscribe and uh, tell your friends about it so we, we can connect with more people. And if you're joining us on Zoom, thank you for joining us. We, we love having a live audience. It's great to get your questions. I, I'd love to have more time. We may, maybe we need to change the schedule for this so we can get more questions or just do an Ask Me Anything session. Are you up for that, Aaron? I'm up for it. Okay, maybe we'll do one of those for everyone. Uh, some of the questions that have come up but we didn't get to answer and then obviously live questions. So we'll do something like that at some point soon. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be here next time. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.